Dialogic Disciple is an invitation to explore discipleship in dialogue with the world as disciples of the Word. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dialogic Disciple Podcast. My name is James Johnson. I'm here with Nick Houston. Nick Houston. And today we have a special guest with us, Reverend Jeff Rogers. Jeff, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. It's good to be here. It's good to have you back on the uh, podcast. It's been a little while. Man, this is my third Dialogic Disciple. I am uh, excited for the to go for the three-peat. You were part of our original um, cast of characters when we started this thing we we, we were doing uh the road roman's road last year we had you on for that i believe Isn't that i right? think i was the first not in-person interview that you did that's right now as i reflect back because you were trying to figure out how to do the oh yeah Zoom. we had to do it on that's Zoom. right Zoom i do remember that now yeah look at that well it's good to have you here in the office i think uh, he also at this point he's been on three times he's kind of like got the t-shirt for the most appearances i think that's right i yeah. think that's right at this, oh. at this point you've been on almost as much as nick has been on so good for all good. those <laughs> i mean it's a distant second <laughs> well it's good to have you jeff jeff how's your lint going so far man lint is good season lint is a meaningful season in the church i have decided to I don't know if y'all are talking about Lenten practices these days on Dialogic no, Disciple. Ahead, yeah. So I'm doing once a week uh, fasting from like dinner to dinner. So like 24 hours fast. I find that's a spiritual discipline that's always meaningful to me, but I hate doing it like in the moment of not eating, mostly because I love food. I think it's it's good. I'm glad I do it, but it is hard. What um what kind of fast is it? Is it an all day fast or? Yeah, I'm not I'm not eating. Okay. I didn't know. So, you know, some people do this uh, intermittent fasting now where they just don't eat for like 16 straight hours every day or something like that. And it's. Yeah, I call it not eating breakfast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You that's call a, it intermittent fasting. That's horrible. I mean, yeah. you got to have at least second breakfast. I always eat breakfast. I'm a breakfast person. <laughs> well, and that seems to be working out for you, but uh, not so much for me. So I skip the breakfast and that way I can concentrate my calories later in the day and have a really good, solid, hearty meal. That's totally the opposite of fasting, though. But, yes, that's what I've been doing over Lent uh, fasting. And it is because I do eat so many meals throughout the day. I find myself thinking regularly that uh, man does not live on bread alone. Like that phrase just always comes to my mind over and over and over again. When you're getting hungry. In the season of Lent. Yeah. It's just. <laughs> so is it a particular day of the week? I've done Wednesdays. It felt like the holy day to do it because mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it on Sunday, but you know, it's just it's the secondary church day out of the week. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us uh, here. We're doing a discussion, as you know, on the the lit devotion this year, the sand on the seashore. And uh, this week of February 28th, and um, I don't know, I just, let me start by uh, asking you a question. What would you think? What would you think of the week? Anything, <laughs> any ideas jump out to you? What's up? <laughs> no, it's been a, it's a good week in the devotional. I've heard a lot of good feedback across the board from the church on the devotion and how it's blessed their life over the last few weeks. And this week with the kind of headline I don't know if it says it directly or if it's just the theme of it, but temptation, uh, always a fun one to talk about. But I liked one of the quotes 
that we were kicking around right before we hit record here that uh, when God promises, God takes care of the details. That was probably the first thing out of the week that jumped out to me. Nick, you uh, you were the one who brought that up earlier uh, when we were talking before we went on, went on the air. What did you uh, find interesting about that particular? It's so reassuring. And then you see examples of it throughout Scripture. I mean, we talked about it. Uh, certainly, it's in this process of God promising to um, Abraham that he's going to have this great nation come out of him. And you see God follow through with that in, in ways that we don't expect. Um, and I think about ways in our personal lives, too, where you see you've, God has made you a promise and, and things come to be. Like, um, I don't know whether it's looking for a home or a job or like just I, th- I think that we see God work out the details of things in neat and amazing ways. Seems to be one of those things that you see better with hindsight or in retrospect. You know, I mean, we have these great ideas of what God's promises mean in our life. But when you're in the weeds of those things, trying to figure out the home buying, if it's a a task like that, or if it's a calling that you have in your life, like a particular profession or vocation that you're being called to, it looks different when you reflect back and you're like, oh, now that I'm 10 years down the road, I can see how God was at work putting people in my lives Mm -hmm. here and teaching me in this moment the lesson that I would use. So it's definitely a, a retrospective practice to see. So in the moment, it's hard for us to see the details being covered. But later on, it looks as though God had it all under control from the very beginning. Is that, did I that's that certainly right? how I've experienced yeah, it. Yeah. I don't know if that's how you've experienced it as well. I th- that's how I've experienced yeah. too. And I think that's part of that faith process. I think that we have faith in the process that God is working the details together, and then you're able to look back on it and see how all the pieces fit together. I guess the other side of that that I think about in the moment, the closest thing that I've experienced to God working out the details would be a sense of peace about the details. Like I'm still having to figure out what needs to go down, but a lot of times there's a sense of peace that comes Um, with God and the details, if it's something God's called us to. So at the other end of that, have you experienced a time when you did not have a sense of peace about something and that made you feel like God's not in it and it's the wrong thing for you to be doing? That's a good question. Is something coming to your mind? I got to think about that one. Um, (laughs) I I think about times where I've been intentional about praying for God to kind of show me the right path or, you know, I want something... To work out, but I don't want it to be me that's working it out. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to be in God's will, you know. And so I will pray. Like if this is not the right thing, blow it up, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like I don't want to make a mistake here. Um, so that's kind of like asking God to take the responsibility for the decision, though, isn't it? I mean, you're uh, you're asking, you're praying, God you know, blow this thing up so that I don't make the wrong choice here. I mean, or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've never, I've never even thought about that as a strategy before. I guess it would work though. Really? You haven't thought of, no, I, you know, I, I, you know, I've, I've prayed for guidance and decision-making and, and, and planning and that kind of thing when I'm looking at, you know, what's, what's coming next in life or whatever, or 
small things, big things, whatever. But I've never, it's never occurred to me to be like, look, if that's the wrong thing, just like make it take awful. it off the table. Take, take it off the table. Yeah. yeah, I don't know that I've, uh, I don't know that I've ever done that before. I don't know. I can't remember a time I've done. I'm that. trying to think. Is there? I'm trying to think about Bible stories where God would, where somebody might have prayed a prayer like that. Yeah. I guess. I think the only thing I, I can think of is um, Jonah's. Jonah, Jonah, be, yeah, Jonah's a good one. Hezekiah is another one where, you know, it kind of goes the opposite direction, but he kind of blows up Hezekiah's life after he gives him 15 extra years. Yeah. But uh, that's not quite the same thing. I don't know. It's interesting. It never occurred to me that other people don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you had a better uh, Sunday school teacher than we did. It was a fun conversation. <laughs> Must have been the Baptist Sunday school teachers. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Well, this is a this is the second full week of Lent, and the the story that we're focusing on, um, kind of that's guiding the conversation for the devotion this week was. The story of the Israelites having passed through the Red Sea, stepping into the wilderness. And this is a metaphor that I think, um, as we were talking about the Red Sea last week, this is a metaphor that Paul uses to talk about um, the Christian life. It is a, it is a activity, that, you know, it is a practice, it is something that um, is not uncommon in the Christian tradition, nor was it uncommon in the Jewish tradition, of going into the wilderness. And... And having a time of uh, respite or retreat, and um, we see that with John the Baptist, who was part of a wilderness community, and we also see that, I think more importantly, with Jesus Christ, who after he was baptized, after he passed through his own Red Sea, he went into the wilderness for 40 days as a way of, of mirroring the story of the Israelites. Um, I don't know, how much time have you guys ever spent reflecting on this story of the 40 years when the Israelites are in the wilderness? Do you, have, you, have you spent a lot of time thinking about that? I know, Jeff, you probably have done some work on that in seminary and whatnot and, and writing sermons and, and things like that. But Yeah, I mean, uh, the 40 years in the wilderness, I'd, I've always thought more about Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness than I have thought about the time that the Israelites spent. Okay. Have you thought about those in connection with each other though? You know, it's just one of those things where you got these numbers in the Bible. Yeah. And you know they're all connected. <laughs> but it's it's kind of like C.S. Lewis talks about demons. It's like think about it a little bit, but don't think about it too much. Right. You gotta yeah, do, yeah. You gotta do something. That's right. So like know that there's a connection there, but don't try to like beautiful mind it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to say that, yeah. Seeing I felt like every adult Bible study was on the Exodus. Like really as a kid, I felt like whatever my parents or grandparents were reading, it was always the Exodus and the Israelites in the wilderness. And I guess then it did move over into um, taking over the promised land. But I felt like that's all they were ever reading. Yeah. It was always the Israelites in the wilderness. Well, it's an important story. It certainly is foundational for the identity of Israel uh, and as for us, for Christians as well. I mean, it's, it's one of those um, paradigmatic stories, right? It's a story that sets a paradigm for us and, and helps us to understand our faith. Um, as, as we were talking about this on the, on the first day on March 1st, on Wednesday, or Monday, March 1st, um, one of the things that, that really struck me as I was 
writing this and reading and preparing for this is this attitude that the Israelites have when they come out. And, um, you know, they don't even get a month into their liberation, their freedom from slavery before they're like, yeah, we should probably go back. This is, this is pretty terrible. Why'd you guys bring us out here? So there's like uncomfortability with God's freedom. Like the idea that they have to trust God to provide the next meal or the next, uh, you know, uh, glass of water or whatever. They have to trust God to provide for them in this wilderness, this freedom of, of uh, this liberation freedom from slavery. Whereas even though they were slaves in Egypt, they knew where their meal was coming from. Like they knew where the next meal was coming from. They knew that they weren't going to die uh, of starvation. And now, now they have this attitude of, it's a lack of faith, I guess, but it's also, I think, an understandable feeling of uncertainty that they have. And even more so, I think, a cynical kind of outlook on what God is trying to do by saving them, what Moses is trying to do by leading them out. So last week we talked about them getting, you know, to the shores of the Red Sea. They're being pursued by the Egyptian army, and they're like, why'd you bring us out here to let them kill us? We should have just stayed in Egypt. Yeah. And then this week it is, oh, now we're out in this wilderness, and yes, you miraculously crossed this water, you know, provided for that, but we're going to starve to death. And so special arrangements are made to feed them. That's right. And yet they're still complaining. That's right. I think the two words that come to mind are change and contentment. On okay. one hand, like people always want change. Like people just People want change? They they say they do. They want something different than where they are, but by the time the change comes, they're like, "Oh, I don't I don't want to have to do something different. I just wanted things to be better right. without doing anything." Right, right. No, I think that's I, right. I think the that's a symptom of a lack of contentment. If, if you don't think your situation now is good enough, if you can't find contentment where you are, you won't change, but you aren't totally sure what, what that's supposed to look like. I think, I think, that's, I think that's right. I, you know, and you get the sense that the Israelites in, in Exodus, they cry out because they're in slavery. Um, so they, they do have that lack of contentment, let's say. Obviously. And, <laughs> but let me but try they, to like say save face here. When you turn it to the next step, I'm not trying to say that if you are in an oppressed situation, you should feel content about that. Right. Absolutely. No, exactly. But that's not the situation that we Although, find ourselves in in this particular right, room right now. Right. I got my uh, I got my candle radar on, don't worry. Thank uh, you, sir. <laughs> no, but you know, Paul would say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, uh, so the, the Israelites are content in slavery. Well, they're not content, though. That's what my point is that they, they cry out, right? They cry out to God in order to, be, in order to be rescued from slavery, like you were talking about, because they weren't content. But then when they receive the freedom and liberation, they want to go back to that situation that, that they left behind. The, the situation where they weren't content, right? They don't know what contentment is, I think, sure. to get to what you're trying to talk sure, about, sure. the change, right? Um, what, what, is, what causes that lack of contentment even after they are freed from slavery? What is it that, that makes them so cynical about God's... Like, they just watched God deliver like 10 plagues on Egypt. They just watched Moses and God part the Red Sea. And yet they still have, it's not just that they have a lack of faith, they have a very cynical outlook 
to what God is capable of doing or what God is going to do for them. Does that make sense? All right. So I want to fumble around with this for a little bit and Let's see if we can get to a place that makes sense. Okay. Because in our conversation, um, diving into the Lenten devotional, we had this conversation about sin, sin nature, sin as a worldview. Yeah. Like how pervasive sin is to the extent that you can't, it, it, it limits what you're able to think. Right. Okay. Right. Like you're in this strapped in the sin box. And so one of the ways in which I think that sin is limiting is that then that has death has entered the world. And now you're talking to people who are, you're, you're working with people who can only think finitely. Okay. Like there is not, we don't see the long game. Like we see a very short range plan. And so much of what we do is just geared around how are we going to survive the next minute, the next day, maybe the next week. So something like scarcity has entered into yes. the mindset, right? Right. Yeah. And so our minds are so quickly reset. No matter what we've seen happen, we immediately come back to, well, I could still die tomorrow. Yeah. And so now you've got to make plans for this constantly. And so I feel like there's something about the way God thinks when you are out of time, it's easy like to have this plan come together. Yeah. When you are stuck in time, mm -hmm. you can't you can't see it. Like you just can't, you just can't see it. So, so much easier to be God. Just be out of time. <laughs> right. Um, so it's the difference between having like a temporal imagination and an eternal imagination, right? It's the difference between thinking temporally and thinking eternally. Uh, the difference between scarcity and ab abundance. I don't know, Jeff, what do you, what do you think about that? When you were talking, Nick, I thought about my practice of fasting over Lent and when you get hungry, when you have, your belly grumbling you know you're like i just am not thinking about anything else right now mm -hmm. it is so in your face so when you are living in time and you have these struggles and these pressures in your face it's so hard to think beyond that or around that mm -hmm. and i think regardless of how amazing uh the miracle that they saw god perform like there's still the cares of today and tomorrow. And I think we, I mean, that still happens today. Maybe we don't see a literal sea parting, but we forget the great things that God has done over the course of our life because of the problem that's coming up in the meeting in two hours. That's really not going to be a big deal in the grand scheme of things. We have this like forward looking, uh, our, our minds are always fo focused on what's coming up next. We hardly ever take a second to look back, right? And see what has happened before. Is that, I mean, I think, I feel like that's what you're trying to get at a little bit. I, there's a great passage in, man, I can't remember it off the top of my head. It's in Isaiah somewhere where um, God is talking and he's saying, he says something to the effect of, um, 
He said, uh, "Listen, like basically, like listen to the sound of my voice. You know, as as you're walking back backwards, right? You're looking, you're looking, you're like turned around, and you have to listen to the, the sound of God's voice behind mm-hmm. you that is directing you. Don't turn to the left or to the right. Just listen to my word, right? But the the mm-hmm. image is a is a person walking backwards and trusting that voice into the future, while their eyes are are looking at what has gone in the past." So you're always remembering and thinking about the ways in which God has already directed you, which is what gives you the faith to trust the voice of God, you know, behind you that is leading you because we can't see the future in the way that God can, because like you were talking mm-hmm. about, he's outside of time. This is, um, this, I, I mean, it really makes a lot, it connects, I think deeply with Jesus's, uh, Sermon on the Mount passage where he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink mm-hmm. or what you're going to mm-hmm. wear. Um, which is an Ash Wednesday text. Yeah. Right. I mean, it leads right into what Lent is all about. Also that amazing scripture passage you were mentioning just makes me think of like a survivor game where you got one person (laughs) calling out instructions and another person. I like that. We should, we should do that. Be a good uh, student ministries game. Oh yeah. Team building. That's that's great. (laughs) Oh, we could do that for staff retreat. There you go. Do that again. We ever do that again. (laughs) um all right so uh, moving forward then unless you guys have anything else you want to say about that i I think the last thing that i would have on that is the whole the whole week starts off with exodus 15 right Mm -hmm. and uh i know it has a word to describe that passage there's like a i can't remember what it is but it I mean, that's Miriam's song. Is that what it is? It's a, it's a Moses' song is, is what I focus Moses on. But I think, I think there's a, a Miriam song in there too. And it has this passage in the very beginning where it's like God has triumphed. Mm-hmm. And one of the Old Testament classes that I really remember from seminary was breaking down that passage and watching a Prince of Egypt clip on YouTube about it. But the point is that God really 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 triumphs that's how the text translates like this is the moment and it is really hit home in that song which clearly if it's a song like that it goes even deeper than the rest of the text that's right and like that is in the hearts and the minds of the people and it begins we all know the first line of any hymn better than we do the rest of it and the first line of this song is god has really really triumph the way the the way the common english bible translated is um i will sing to the lord for an overflowing victory an overflowing Mm -hmm. victory not just a victory but an overflowing victory you know kind of like uh the way that tampa bay beat kansas city you know in in the sense (laughs) of like you didn't need all those extra points but you got them anyway you know like there's an overflowing victory that was for you Stu, in case you're listening uh so um No, I like that. I like, and I, I think it's it's focusing on things like that and understanding that the victory of the Red Sea crossing, the victory of of saving the Israelites from slavery, and the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, these all these victories of God that just seem to stack up, stack up over time. Um, focusing on those, thinking about those, meditating on those should give us the confidence, right, to believe that God is is going to take care of the details of the promises that he's made well and so i guess that's where i was heading is in that it, it that question about how we have distorted vision like recognizing that our vision is distorted by our sin nature like that that the kind of the box we're in keeps us from seeing what god wants us to see yeah and 
to get that kind of vision God has. I mean, that that's this path that we're on, like the path through Lent um, to be to be dedicated, to be repentant, to be made righteous. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that we get get God's vision, and I particularly think about that with the local church, like in terms of how do you want to be active as a local church? What kind of vision do you want to have for your community? What kind of, you know, projects, outreach, like how, how does, how does getting, getting on board, getting involved and getting engaged in the scripture help you to get God's vision? Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. And that's for me, I mean, that community piece, I mean, you're talking about getting engaged with the church for me, when I, when, I was, when I was reflecting on this, what really came to mind for me, and I've used the word a couple times already, but is this, this kind of shadow of cynicism that, that falls over the Israelites. And I think maybe the reason why that came to me is because that's, that's what happens to me. I think I become mm-hmm. cynical in my faith. And I mean that in the sense of just like, um, it's, it's more than, it's not that I don't even, it's not even that I don't believe that God's going to do something. It's just that I'm like, I, you know, I, I get an attitude of like, uh, this kind of darkening, this darkening of my mind, right? What happens with, with sin, and we've been talking about, but this attitude of like, well, I would have done that better, or I would have done that a different way, or, uh, you know, or I can do that. Let me, let me take care of this when I got this. You know, so it's not even that I have a lack of faith, although that's what it ultimately is, but it's that, it's that, uh, I don't know, I just get this, I, I find myself in this cynical place, I think, a lot of times. Maybe, maybe this gets a little too personal, but well, I, 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 see you as impatient <laughs> me yeah and i feel like you you've got vision it just if it takes if it gets hard or takes too long to do you're just like nah we just won't do that then i'll come up with a new plan yeah no that, that sounds about right that sounds about right and that, i think that's uh that 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 comes from that attitude right that impatience that uh that cynicism i think uh, is one of my big struggles for sure um well that's the other aspect of god's promises right the timing of it mm-hmm because none of these promises were were tied to a timeline. Yeah. Like Moses wasn't giving God a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, or how about Abraham, you know, yeah. how long he waited to even have Isaac, much less to talk about the Exodus. Absolutely. Yeah. And he never got to see any of the the real deep promises that that God gave him, you know, he didn't see numerous descendants. He didn't even live in the land, you know, he didn't even really settle in the land that God had promised him. And his descendants. So. But we hear these promises of God, and we have our own vision for what that's supposed to look like. Yeah, yeah. But it's, we have to understand, like, our vision is distorted. Yeah. Like, we are not going to see totally clearly. And maybe not even at all sometimes, right? I mean, that's exactly right. And, that, I mean, that's what's happening with the Israelites here, right? They mm-hmm. come out, and they they have an idea of what it means to be free and to sure. be God's people. And so, they're yeah, they're going to walk across the Red Sea and into paradise, right? And it clearly, very quickly becomes, that's not the case. Um, and in fact, God's got some things in store for them that they're probably not going to like. We're not even to the, the, the Mount Sinai and the law yet, right? This is, a, this is a lawless people. I mean, they're law-free right now. They really have one rule. Don't gather manna on Sabbath, you know? Don't gather more than daily bread. That's their only rule that God gives them when he, when he gives them the bread from heaven. And they can't even do that. Don't eat of this fruit. Don't eat from this tree. <laughs> it's food and God, but, God and food. But I mean, we see it in tiny humans. I watch like when Carson was learning to crawl, I was like, hey, man, this whole floor is yours. Just don't touch that outlet. 
just don't touch and the outlet. Get, and he goes straight this to outlet? the outlet. Yeah. <laughs> this outlet. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, man. It really is built into our nature, isn't it? It really is. And that's why we get that's why we get Psalm 51. And that's why I love Psalm yeah, 51. Let's talk about that for a little you, bit. You covered on two different days, which I love. I think the devotional says like highlight or underline what stands out and circle what you want to work on. Yeah. Y'all are pulling out the page. And it's just if I did that, I would just highlight the whole thing the and whole circle. Thing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, once again, uh, Elizabeth was the one who was responsible for um putting together the picking the Psalms and and putting together these Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday reflections. And I really liked that she decided to split this into two uh, and not try to tackle the whole thing in one day. So on Tuesday and Thursday of this week, we did uh, Psalm 51, which uh, is one of my favorite Psalms. I think it's one of everybody's favorite Psalms, the way that it speaks. Jeff, you, what, do, what are some of the words you have for it? There's something about this Psalm has been used liturgically a lot. And just the idea of like, don't cast me out of your presence. I can hear it being sung like take not your spirit from me you know but just like i know my transgressions i know my sin it's against you that i've sinned i mean it just it hits home you don't have to explain that to people like as a as a preacher or a teacher a lot of times you're thinking like okay how can I explain this verse in a way that other people understand it? But when you read the verse against you, I've sinned, you don't need to explain that. Yeah. Everybody out there is like, yeah, that's a really good insight. Like when I was trying to teach sanctification on Sunday and you know, you don't, what do you, how do we start to, how you begin to break down these kind of concepts that, that we, you know, it took years for us to really understand, but, but the simplicity and the poetry of the Psalm cuts immediately to the to the heart mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's that's where thursday picks up creating me a pure heart right yeah that's sanctification creating a pure heart that's right in yourself and it's not a concept that <laughs> i mean you can talk about sanctification all day you can write books and <laughs> volumes on it all you and want never say a word really <laughs> or just say creating me a pure heart that's oh god right. i can't tell you how many times i prayed uh, read and prayed this particular paragraph in Psalm 51, creating me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within mm-hmm. me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Mm. That's the line mm. right there. And grant a willing spirit to sustain me. I, I, I've, I bet I've read this particular passage more than I've read any other passage in the Bible. Mm. I just It feels like every time I felt like I was in the wrong place or doing the wrong thing or needed needed just to be restored mm-hmm. you know this is the passage i would go to right it's so good yeah it's it's all there like the whole the whole journey of salvation the whole thing and those three little stanzas there and you think about the context of psalm 51 traditionally this is this is the psalm that that david wrote after his confrontation with nathan and the Bathsheba incident. And so he is, he is crying out, you know, his, his son that he had or the child that he had with Bathsheba has died. You know, he has been called out. He has murdered somebody. He has committed adultery. He has, he has just the guy after God's own heart, right? This is, that's, how we, that's how he gets characterized in the Bible. A man after God's own heart is now 
crying out and saying, create in me a pure heart, O Lord. You know, even, even the most well-directed heart can be corrupted by sin. Well, and he, that came, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, this is David after he committed adultery and after he murdered somebody. But it's after he was held accountable. That's right. And that's something we sure don't want. Yeah, that's right. After he'd been smacked around by the prophet a little bit. Hey, uh, Nick, what are, you, uh, what are you thinking over there? You got some thoughts about this passage? This is the first time you ever heard it before? It is not the first time I've ever heard it. I've heard it a few times. Um, we read this story of Balaam's ass uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, I had and, not uh, heard he that He had never one. heard that story before. I had never heard I was that like, before. You, you didn't grow up Baptist. You've been posing this entire time. It, I, well, it's because they that, don't want to say that word in the Baptist that's church. That's right. Balaam's so donkey. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to edit that, that out. hurt. <laughs> You know, I, I honed in on a different space yep. in this. Um, for some reason, what what I locked in on this go round was, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, mm-hmm. is a broken spirit, mm-hmm. a broken and contrite heart. You God will not despise. Yeah, just I I, I think this is kind of becoming a theme for me, um, and I'm I'm picking up on this over and over and over again, how often God says he just wants your heart to be changed. wants your heart to be in the right place. Yeah. Um, and so that came off the page for me, I think in part because I'm so familiar with that creating me a clean heart Yeah. that there is a, as great as it is, there's a temptation to be like, yeah, I've read that a billion times. Keep going. What's here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's interesting. You know, like you talk about the idea of a changed heart, but I also think a broken heart makes me think of a vulnerable yeah. approach like we do not want to be vulnerable in front of god or in front of other people mm-hmm. but i love that you brought in change because it's not until we're willing to be vulnerable and say hey i do have shortcomings that we're able to see see the change that we actually need maybe not the change we want and that's just i mean that's what the seasonal lent is supposed to be about you know coming together as a community to have that vulnerability, that brokenness, that contrition, um, and to truly, you know, not just as individuals, but as a community, to have that change of heart, that transformation of heart that we've been talking about. Well, I love that it's, that's the sacrifice that we bring, that, that brokenness to say, you know, I'm not right. I don't have it together. This isn't working out. I need God to fix this. And to be written that way in the Psalms, when the way to get to atonement was to bring those burnt offerings, to bring that sacrifice, that animal. Yeah. And then say, you know what? That's, it doesn't need to be that. It needs to be well, you. That's where you get, you get a little a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, and realize that God never really cared about the sacrifices mm-hmm. and all the rituals. Right. Those things were important for shaping a people, for sure. But it's always been about the heart. It's always been about the heart, soul, mind. It's the whole being, right? And everybody can bring that. Like, anybody can bring their heart. In fact, it's the hardest thing to bring. Yeah. You want me to bring a sacrifice? Whatever. Like, here's my, like, checkbook. I can do that. Yeah. And it costs me something, but I can touch it. I can tell you what it is. I mean, that's it right there. In fact, I feel like what we learn in Scripture more often than not is the more we actually have materially, the harder it is to bring our heart. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the story of the rich young ruler who... Who says I, I keep every covenant? I keep every commandment except mm-hmm. for, you know, the one that Jesus doesn't list, which is "Do not covet." 
because his heart is not pure, right? And he can't give away all of his possessions after Jesus asks him to. It's the same way with us. And it doesn't have to be that much stuff. I'm not even talking about a lot of stuff. I'm just, anytime we have other things that we can rely on or that we care about that kind of direct our hearts, that's, that's when it's hard for us to come to God with that broken heart. I did have this thought as I was reading uh, this week of the devotion that temptations seem to be more and more difficult the older I get and the more I have my life established, the more like stuff I have. The more you're self-reliant, right? Right. Yeah. The temptations are are so different because I'm like, "Ah." well, like maybe I could, maybe I could just do it on my own, pull myself up by my bootstraps and be a a self-made pastor. Self-made pastor. I think that transitions us to a good conversation about the ways in which we try to shortcut our ways to the kingdom of God, Mm. which just happens to fall on my birthday, which is Wednesday, March 3rd. And this idea that um, there's only one way to the kingdom. And and this is what the story of the gospel is. The only way to the kingdom is through that that narrow gate and that, that difficult road, the way of the cross that Jesus himself walks. And when he goes out into the wilderness, as we've been talking about, when he goes out to the wilderness like the Israelites did, he is confronted by the tempter, by the devil, who gives him those three temptations. And I, the way that I've characterized them here, and then the way that I talk about them in general, is that they're all shortcuts that, that Jesus could take to get straight to the kingdom of God mm. and do the work of the kingdom without having to go through the way of the cross, right? You can feed the people, you can be a spectacle, or you can become a political leader. Uh, and, you know, th- those are the three things that he's offered. And Jesus turns those down, each and every one of those down. What did you guys think of this passage or this idea of shortcuts to the kingdom? Or am I the only one who thinks this? I couldn't decide if I agreed with the shortcuts to the kingdom analogy. I felt like it was shortcuts to something, but not the kingdom. Well, I mean establishing the kingdom, right? So the whole plan, the whole plan of God is to is to create the will of God and the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that is, that's what we see promised and unveiled in the book of Revelation and the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom as he's preaching in his earthly ministry. The only way that happens is through the cross. The only way that happens is through the cross and the resurrection. But here, Satan, or the devil, or the tempter, however we want to talk about him, um, I'm comfortable with Satan. Yeah, I know you. Yeah. All right, so we'll just say, <laughs> I'll just say, I like the quote, I'm comfortable with Satan. I think that's, like a, a, that's a dialogue. Can we put that on a t shirt? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a cherry quote. Um, no, so what I mean by that is, is these are three ways in which Jesus can uh, establish the kingdom of God on earth. If you feed everybody, man, people are going to flock to you. As we see, these are also temptations that he, he encounters later on. He feeds the 5,000. What happens? They try to make him king, and he runs away. He goes away. He doesn't run away. He goes away. He doesn't, he doesn't accept that. So that right there, that's what, that's what Satan's offering. So, but the temptation is for him to establish his own kingdom, not God's kingdom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, well, if an earthly kingdom, right? Like a physical kingdom. What? Well, yeah. So let's talk about. I mean, let's talk about it. What do you guys? Because I, I, I don't want to make a difference. I don't want to get too deep into the theology on this, but um, 
I don't make a distinction between a physical, material, and spiritual kingdom. I think the kingdom of God is very much a material kingdom that we are a part of even now, right? It is also spiritual. And so is all the other. And you, you could say that uh, Satan here has the ability to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all of the secular governments of the world, right? Which, what does that mean in that day? It means Rome. It means a couple others, maybe. But he's able to hand over the keys to all these kingdoms. That tells me that, number one, Satan has a lot more power over our secular world than sometimes we want to acknowledge. But also, Hmm. secondly, those kingdoms are spiritual, too. The kingdom of of Rome is a spiritual kingdom. Kingdom of America is a spiritual kingdom. There's a spirituality. There's there's a a book title. There's a kingdom of America. So here's what I I saw this this past week. for the first time that this temptation Jesus is tempted to forfeit his soul in order to gain the world. Okay. Which is exactly exactly what he he tells the disciples in Matthew 16 that I preached on yesterday. That's Mm -hmm. why that's why it's in my mind. Right. Because he says, what does it profit a man to sacrifice their soul, but gain the whole world? Yeah. Instead, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. So I'm wondering, I don't, I don't know. This is, I'm going on a tangent now. Let's do it. Is there a class in seminary or is that something you develop later where you come up with what your um, preaching or yeah, your preaching cliches are going to be like your go-to scriptures. You're just going to quote all the time. It doesn't matter if it's relevant. This is what you use because I am telling you, man, that is one that my pastor used as a teenager all the time. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I think it's just a popular. The other one was, and the Lord causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Over and over again, he said. Your pastor had an incredible voice. I don't know if he had anything (laughs) else going for him, but uh, that's all it probably took him. So I don't know. It just made me wonder. You know, that's funny. They don't teach you as much of that stuff in seminary as you'd think. I think everybody just has their favorite verses that, yeah. that they use. And if you have to preach yeah. 50 times a year, that's exactly you're, right. bound you're to gonna, use it. You're going to fall back to your yeah. favorites, no doubt. So anyway, that can totally come out. But now I do the same thing even in teaching. Man, Anyone who's ever taken a class of mine will tell you, I'm going to get two passages in every class. Isaiah, <laughs> Isaiah chapter 2. two. And Philippians <laughs> chapter two. I'm gonna get kenosis and the kingdom of God in there every time. I had kenosis yesterday too. Is it? Yeah. See, see, that's good. I love it. That's great. That's a great passage. Again, a passage about emptying yourself. That's right. That's right. So, and I think I think that's um, I I guess I had never really thought about it in those terms before, Jeff. But I think that's right. You that that the temptations being offered here are, he's gaining the world. Um, well, and particularly through that political one, anyway. Gaining, gaining right, the right. world. The third temptation is his what's soul. at play there. I like that. I say all this to say that then the reason why I call these shortcuts here is because I want us to think about ways in which we try to shortcut. Now, we've, we've been talking about God covering the details of the promise, and we've been talking about the patience that some of us need to have uh, in, in allowing God to do what God does. It, I am a definitely a shortcut kind of guy. If I can find a shortcut, I'm going to take a shortcut. So, But are these, for, for Christ, are these really like credible temptations? I mean, he's the Son of God. Right. Like, so, well, yeah, but he's fully human. Well, see, and that's the space where I'm kind of like, what? Well, but if 
if he could turn the stone into bread, if he could summon the angels to protect him, if he do that, like, how much of a temptation is notice, it? Notice, though, so here's the thing. Here's, this is where we get into some sketchy, uh, I get into some sketchy orthodoxy. <laughs> I don't even know if it's orthodoxy, but listen. If you just read the, the first time we read this story of the temptations in the book of Mark, that's the first time it's written down, right? And Matthew and Luke are borrowing heavily from that. He does not go into the wilderness until after he receives the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So Jesus Christ, whether he is fully God and fully human or whatever, whatever he is before the Holy Spirit, everything he does is through the power of the Holy Spirit that he received at his baptism. So that mm-hmm. is what powers his ministry and empowers his ministry. That's the same thing for the church, by the way, as the body of Christ. We are powered and empowered by the same spirit that powered and empowered Jesus Christ. So when the, temp- the temptation then is to use this power or to use this spirit to do things, to shortcut, right? To shortcut to the kingdom. And that's the language I'm using. Hmm. But it is, or to sell your soul or whatever it is. But the, he doesn't do anything, anything in the Bible apart from the spirit which is true for us. So it doesn't matter whether, you know, uh, genetically he is, you know, fully God, fully human. That's, that doesn't even really matter because what, whatever he is before that, it's through this, it's through this receiving of the Spirit at the, at the baptism that he is driven out into the wilderness and that he then does all his ministry. That's what I think. Well, Jeff, what do you, you have I mean, I'm that? just wrestling with this idea of shortcut. And for me, a shortcut is a way to sign of kind of sidestep a discipline right. to get to the same end result. That's right. And if we just take if we like set spirituality aside for a second because that's hard to talk about and we yeah. talk about our physical health. Yeah. And you say, "Okay, if you want to be in shape, what do you have to do?" It's diet and exercise. Yep. Okay. No. There's no shortcuts. Yeah. You can't just, you know, you can take a pill but or you can. People make a lot of money selling pills to. Or you can get surgery Because people or want shortcuts. Yeah. I mean, people want spiritual shortcuts the same way. They're like, is there a fancy book? Is there a pastor out there that wrote a book? Oh, I can just pay my way in or, oh, I can just do like this simple yeah. prayer every day. Maybe that's the way to get to the kingdom. It's like, well, no, it's, it's the spiritual disciplines that get you there. That's right. And, and I guess you'd say if you're a good Wesleyan, as I imagine you are, Jeff. I hope so. You would say, you know, the works of piety and the works of, of uh, mercy, right? You, you have this... Um, Individual and communal of right, each of those. Right, right. Um, the concern here, I think, is, is there's only one way to the kingdom of God. And the way that Christ took is the way that we all have to go. Mm. It's the way of the cross, right? Deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. It is self-sacrifice and self-emptying, the kenosis passage we were talking about. That's the only way. You can't, you can't pray your way in. You can't worship your way in. You can't write checks to get in. You can't do anything else to get in other than give up your life for Jesus Christ and for the gospel. And if you can't do that, there's no... You can't get in. You can't get in. Well, it's that simple and it's that hard, right? No, it's the simplest and the hardest thing, right? This is why <laughs> Jesus says it's, uh, you know, it's practically impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven because the, the, there's too many things that they have to let go of. They can't empty themselves and they're always looking for those shortcuts. Well, as you start to own more and more stuff. Exactly like we were saying, yeah. That's what you realize. You're like, oh, well, geez. I, I got a pretty good right now. I don't really need 
much of the spirit stuff. Maybe the kingdom of God isn't as good as the kingdom of James after all. I mean, you're certain that the kingdom of Jeff is a great kingdom. Yeah, right. Like, I know that's one that I like that I'm cool to be a part of. Yeah. And that goes back to exactly what we were talking about with the the Israelites in slavery, right? I mean, this is, you know, they, they're out now, they're out in the, in the wilderness trying to do the kingdom of God thing, uh, we'll say, uh, becoming the people of God for sure. Mm-hmm. And what do, they, what do they want? They want to go back to what they knew was certain, even if it wasn't anywhere close to what God had prepared for them. Certainty is such a draw. It really is. It really is. You know, there was a one phrase you used towards the end of the week, and I don't... This is the one where I quote uh, Empire Strikes Back, oh. that, can't, that we're looking for places to get to the kingdom of God that are easier, easier, quicker, and more seductive, like the dark side of the force. No, that's Nobody amazing. even picked that up. That's amazing. <laughs> um, oh, man, that makes me think of other church and Star Wars quotes. But no, you, like, you just talk about the concept of transformation a little bit. And yeah. I think that's a... That's an interesting one. And as as you talked about it, I thought to myself, you know, how does temptation lead to transformation? And I've taught classes before where I've asked groups of folks like, hey, what do you think of when you think of transformation? And you always get a long silence. And I once just had a grown man look at me. He's like, butterflies? (laughs) (laughs) Like that was as good as he could do. And it was the best answer of the whole class. And I just think about that idea of transformation, like becoming something totally new, but also how hard it is for us to think. I mean, church folks, we're always talking about transformation and these things that people really don't know how to conceptualize. But what does that look like in our life? Right. The scripture that pops in my mind as you talk about that is, is, um, um, what eye has seen, what mind, you know, what eye has seen, what ear has heard, what mind has conceived, the good that God has prepared for them, right? Um, and that, I think that's exactly right, Jeff, in the sense of we are incapable of imagining or understanding or, or seeing what it is that God is trying to transform us mm-hmm. into. We do not have the, cap- the capacity, the capability to even imagine it. We cannot even imagine it. And yet, uh, and, and that's what causes that uncertainty, right? And sometimes causes cynicism. And sometimes causes, it's mm. this darkness that sin has cast over us, this veil that we have, where we cannot imagine the thing that God is trying to do through us. We cannot imagine the butterfly that he's trying to transform us into. And we're fine with being worm-like caterpillars, right? I don't want to even fly. No, I'm good. But I'm were good. we to catch the vision, right, like we were talking about earlier, the vision that God really has for us, yeah. then maybe we would be willing to step on out. That's a good word right there. I like that a lot. And that's what we're seeing in Jesus, right? Jesus is transforming into a butterfly there at the end. The resurrection, that's what it is. I'm just going to ride that butterfly metaphor because somebody brought it up on Sunday yesterday really? during Sunday school <laughs> when we were talking about transformation. It's a powerful metaphor. And I think it works to, to conceptualize what we're talking about here because we can't I think it's a powerful metaphor. Metamorphosis. <laughs> there was something there, and I screwed no, it up. Metamorphosis is right. That's good. Um, metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. That's what <laughs> I was trying to do. T-shirt. 
There's another t-shirt right there. I'm good with Satan metamorphosis. <laughs> Y'all really need to keep me in context. That's funny. <laughs> Nick, when you think of um, transformation, you know, because we do use that word a lot, particularly mm-hmm. as, as Methodists. Anytime I try to talk about sanctification or anything else, uh, transformation is the first word I use. And I, I, maybe I've used it so many times that I've, I've just forgotten <laughs> what it means, right? Uh, or, or really the weight, the, or, or forgotten how this is not a word that pops up that in everyday conversation, right? It's yeah. not a word that pops up in everyday conversation. No. I guess and sometimes I forget that. Um, so Nick, as somebody who, you know, hasn't gone through a seminary education where transformation is a word that you use all the time, I mean, what do That's you true. think of? Like, what do you think the laity or, or just a regular everyday Christian thinks of when they hear the word transformation? I mean, the first thing that came to mind, honestly, if, if we're really just, yeah. you know, like we're playing that game where I, you say a word and I say the first thing that comes to my head, um, like Autobots and Decepticons. Yeah, yeah. That was the first thing that came yeah, to mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Transformers, I mean, transformers. Robots, yeah, yeah. yeah, so transformation, like it's got to be transformers. Autobots, and so. roll out. It's like a boombox that shoots a cassette tape that turns into a Do you know about the robotic eagle. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to conceptualize like the... They made some movies for your generation. Shia LaBeouf and Mark You mean Louis Stevens? Um, you know, I mean, the, the Bumblebee, though, he changes from that Camaro or whatever he is into mm-hmm. Bumblebee, but then he can go back. He just, like, flips it on and off yeah. at will. And uh, I think we think that way, too, sometimes. <laughs> Well, that's a, you know, it's an interesting... Saturday night and Sunday morning. Yeah. You know, there's transformation. I mean, we can talk about backsliding. You want to talk yeah, about no, that? Let's, let's no, let's not talk about that. No, yeah. So that's the first thing that comes to mind with transformation. All right, but let's talk about it in, um, a, in a spiritual context. But in a spiritual context, yeah, it is... I think I get transformation and transfiguration confused. So I think about, like, you've got to be swept over with bright white light and that makes you like different. Yeah, that's definitely transfiguration. <laughs> not not the thing that we're looking for. <laughs> you know, you can't oh, win yeah. them all, James. <laughs> I mean, I think that is fair. You know, like There's we do, we use good. words all the time in the church, um, making things more complicated than they need to be. No, that's right. That's exactly right. And that's what I'm. I guess we need to spend more time carefully choosing our language when we talk about so things like this right as we continue to talk through this and i really get you know to the core of it transformation is about being who god wants you to be instead of who you want to be hmm. i mean for me yeah okay i like for that. me it's i gotta get myself out of it so that i can be god's best version of me i wonder I wonder if we, we should be a little bit more careful about the language of agency they're using there in the sense of like, it's not our job to transform ourselves. Mm-hmm. It has to happen through the Holy Spirit. The only thing that we can do is offer ourselves up. Maybe empty ourselves, but I think even emptying ourselves is something that has to happen through the Spirit. Um, so it might, it might be simply, what, the only thing that we can do is show up and offer that broken heart as a sacrifice mm-hmm. and allow God to take it from there and not be impatient and not be cynical and not be grumbling in the wilderness, 
but to truly trust and have faith that God's going to do that and, and do that every single day. Well, it's all a response to what God has already done for us. So it's not like we're ever operating from, you know, like, oh, I guess I need to make the first step towards God. Like somebody has got an offer an apology yeah. <laughs> here. I mean, he's, he's right there. Already, you know, yeah. he's the prodigal son's father waiting halfway for down the road. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word too. And that's prevenient grace. And there's another Wesley term that we use a lot that people are like, I don't know what that word means. Um, well, you know, I liked it, and that's what I was talking about. Yeah. So I'm glad you named it. All right, gentlemen, uh, anything else from the week that we didn't discuss that we want to dive into? I mean, I just, I assumed that when you called me out to do the temptation week that we were really going to get into it here. <laughs> it's on a temptation the and stuff. Do you want to talk about temptation? Well, I mean, I... <laughs> so what do you feel most tempted by? <laughs> uh, you know, temptation is something that's, uh, I don't really know how to talk about when people ask me about it. I, I have a very uncomfortable with the idea that Satan is tempting people. I don't think we need Satan or the devil for temptation to be a thing, right? I think we can we manage tempting ourselves a lot. Just our broken way we see the world. But then people start talking about demons or whatever, and I, I, I don't know that we need uh, another force other than ourselves to be tempted. Unless we're talking about what we've been talking about, which is this idea that sin is an active force that is lurking and looming and trying to uh, consume us, right? Uh, and that we have to be vigilant and persevere against that. But I mean, I've gotten so much blowback from folks here at Northside over the past couple of weeks who are like, man, I have, we have not talked about sin this much in forever. I've heard more about sin from you in this devotional in the first two weeks of Lent than I've ever heard in my entire life. And I'm like, Oh really? Yeah. No, I like, guess they didn't grow up. Baptist. <laughs> and I don't, and I'm, and I, so when I'm talking, Catholic, when I'm talking about sin and I'm talking about temptation, we're talking about these things that we see in scripture. I'm not trying to just, I'm not, tr- when I'm, I'm not trying to hang over this issue and try to cause people guilt, right? It's not about guilt. It's not about feeling guilty. It is about understanding that thing that is trying to consume us, right? And we don't spend enough time talking about that. But when it comes to the temptation, that's, that's one of the ways in which this, the, the snare is set, the trap is set. Um, but you, did you have... I mean, I do think as, as you're talking, I mean, I, I did, I, I wanted to have something, but uh, in case you were going to ask me about my own temptations, like yeah. personally, honestly, mine are much more to either be... Uh, just incredibly lazy and like mm-hmm. sloth and like, we can talk about the seven deadly sins and yeah. all that kind of thing but that's you know or the enneagram they have like for all its faults or whatever i mean that is one thing that oh. i was like whoo as a nine that really resonates i'm <laughs> lazy as can be or just like making myself busy with a lot of things that are totally irrelevant so you swing back and forth between the yeah it's big a, spectrum there. i'm a miserable wretch and that's why i have to read <laughs> psalm 51 I like yeah yeah but as you're talking about how uncomfortable people are with temptation and with sin, I do think it's fascinating because it's in my own life. I don't want to talk about that kind of thing. I mean, we're so hesitant to to talk about these, at least 
at Northside or in the Methodist Church or just in my life. But I think we have to talk about it. We have to be saved from something. We have to need Jesus for something or else our own kingdom is fine. That's right. Well, and that's how I've always taken your conversation about sin, James, is that you, you you talk about sin so you can talk about salvation. Yeah. Um, otherwise, what are you saved from? And I think we do that too much. We talk about salvation without talking about sin. We talk about grace before we talk about, you know, the darkness that we're in. We talk about the light and we don't ever talk about the dark. And that's, um, man, that is a good way just to stay content and, and secure and certain in your own kingdom without ever having to give up anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's and, the real temptation. And if you can't normalize it, if you can't say, like, we're all sinners, then we'll just go on being content. Yeah. You know, you say you don't want people to feel guilty. And I hate making people feel right. guilty, but oftentimes I will only change right. after a sense of guilt yeah. has come up in my life well, so I, I think guilt can be a vehicle absolutely of grace. yeah and, and i don't mean to say that I don't, I don't want people to feel guilt i definitely do but it doesn't do anybody any good <laughs> if that guilt doesn't like push you toward transformation right sure. or towards whatever sure uh sitting and feeling guilty about something is not what god wants he and jesus doesn't want that either he doesn't want you to sit there and just feel guilty about something you've done or the person that you are whatever whatever it is that you're struggling with that guilt is supposed to be the spark that leads you toward making the decision, right, to do something about sure, it. Sure, sure. I love having the confession sequence in worship. I think it's important for the body. James, I know you love talking about the community. So do I. The community needs to yeah. have this work of piety in our life, a way to say, like, we are not content and we need grace because we are sinful. Yeah. So we confess together. And it needs to be an earnest confession too, you know. That, that we we already covered the passage from First John, First uh, John one nine, where he says, you know, if you are if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you what you've done wrong. That when when John is writing that, he is writing that as a communal confession. He's not even saying like you confess your sins by yourself in your bedroom before you go to sleep at night. You know, <laughs> now he's saying confess your sins out loud in the community to the people. Now that right there is terrifying. Right. I think most people would be like, I'm not part of that church. <laughs> I think the way that you receive this, too, is affected by the conversation we had about how you think about sin, whether you think about it in yeah. terms of that that nature, that worldview, that box that we're trapped in versus the things that you do. Right. Right. Um, That's exactly right. Like, I think people... I mean, we don't have a problem. I don't know. I mean, we do. A lot of us do. But I think it's easier for us to conceive of confessing of doing something wrong than it is to confess that my entire being is flawed and that I am, mm. I am broken in, from the ground up, right? Like, I can confess that I did something bad or that maybe I even have a bad habit. But to confess and truly believe that I am through and through uh, corrupted by sin, is that's a whole different level of confession. Well, I know... My Baptist friends aren't going to like this, but I mean, now we're starting to talk about infant baptism. Now we're starting to talk about. Here we go. You don't want to do this. (laughs) Do you notice though? uh, During during um, during the week, uh, during well, I guess it was during last week. During last week, we actually used the baptismal covenant, right, as part of our guiding 
forest uh, guiding. My heart was strangely warmed. Well, guys, it's been a um, this has been a great conversation about uh, some of the stuff that we talked about in the devotional and and for the season of Lent. Uh, Jeff, you got any final words for the people as we move forward during this this uh, this holy season? I mean, I enjoyed being here on the podcast, and I hope that all those who are listening continue to work their way through the book and take it seriously and work through the questions that are asked, and uh, that they just have a blessed Lent. Yeah, I'm loving the spaces to respond. Um, so I encourage you don't just read the emails. Yeah. Actually do the, do the work, do the work. Yeah. That's great. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being a part of our conversation today. We are truly blessed to have you not only here on Dialogic Disciple podcast, but as one of our ministers here at Northside Church. We appreciate that. Well, thanks James. Nick, you got any final words? Actually, everyone's a minister. He's a pastor. There we go. (laughs) And on that, we'll say, we'll see you next week. Northside Church. Peace. Peace.